back for day two of Too Close or Too Far, Setting Best Boundaries with Clients. Um, this is a training facilitated by myself, Chelsea Sims, and Elizabeth Mackey. We are on day two of four, so this is four sessions. Each are two hours, every other Thursday from one to three. Our next session will be on October 13th, and each session will include kind of a similar format with concepts, vignette, and opportunity for engagement and discussion. Our learning objectives today, um, by the end of the training, will help that you'll be able to define two features of each of two extremes of the neglect overprotect continuum, which is a really wonderful concept we'll get into. Uh, you'll also be able to use two examples um, or give two examples of uh, when or why and how you might want to seek consultation when boundary clarification is needed. You'll be able to describe three practices of radical acceptance that can be used during a process of boundary clarification. Um, and then finally, you'll be able to explain a couple ways in which boundary setting practices may affect a professional's risk and experience of burnout. So there's our uh, hopes for what you'll gain from this training today. So we can expect today, you can expect today some opportunities to learn, um, opportunities to practice self-reflection. You might feel uncomfortable. Some of these topics are difficult. You know, boundary issues, feel uncomfortable. That's why it's so hard. So expect that that might happen today. Uh, you'll hear us appreciating your work a lot. Um, what not to expect today? Again, no perfect concrete answers. Things won't necessarily fill, fit right into your role, your policies at your agencies. Um, there's so such a variety of uh, types of work that is going on for everyone in this room. And so even though things might not fit exactly perfectly, we hope you can still get a sense of how to um, notice when you're having, um, when boundary clarification is needed and how to repair after a boundary crossing, things like that. So now we're gonna do a very brief review because we just learned all this, talked about this uh, a couple weeks ago. It's somewhat fresh. But let's just talk a little bit about um, like what boundaries are and to set the stage for the new concept today. So we defined boundaries. We talked about how boundaries is really important for creating safety for both provider and client. And you can do that by communicating and eliciting limits and needs, um, expressing your needs to your clients, um, eliciting what their limitations are, communicating your limitations. And this helps everyone know what to expect and it helps everyone have a sense of what their role is in this helping relationship. You know, the client has work to do and you have work to do, like who's doing what, who's taking on what. And then we talked about how our boundaries determined or developed. Um, they're developed based on a variety of inputs. We've got client preference needs. We've got provider preference and limits. We've got the, your service context, program policy, ethical considerations, and also relationship considerations, which we'll go over a bit more. Um, we also talked about how they're communicated, whether we're asking permission or consent, whether we are coming to an agreement whether we're just notifying someone of what the boundary is, 
or if we're negotiating with someone about what that might be and coming in to, into the middle uh, somewhere that works for both people. Uh, it's also communicated by uh, being committed to the actions that you're going to do and following through with them. Um, and also reiterating and reinforcing boundaries that you have been um, clarifying and establishing with your clients, um, as well as uh, reiterating and reinforcing the ones they have told you. Uh, here are some of the types of boundaries. We've got safety, that's number one. We've got time, that can be a big one when it comes to figuring out the balance of your work life. Um, we've got financial, that you know can do with uh, how you use flex funds if you are on an FSP team, uh, could have to do with all kinds of things. Uh, physical, we're pretty uh, clear on physical boundaries. It's the easiest, I think, to conceptualize. Um, and then attraction, where we all might have um, emotional reactions to other people in the world. And some of those might be, I want to be friends with you, or I'm attracted to you. And if that you're having that with a client, that is a type of boundary that you need to work on. Um, and so those are just some examples. And then we talked about that, you know, all of this goes to show you that boundaries are really important for your and the client's safety, for your ability to provide quality care, which includes being client-centered, supporting clear communication and expectations, and being trauma-informed. Um, and then ethics, of course. We want to honor the power imbalance within the helping relationship, and we want to make sure we are um, putting those who are most vulnerable in a place where they can have um, the most, uh, where they're the safest and we're following the ethical guidelines that uh, make that happen. Here's a little overview on power and boundaries. Uh, we went over this pretty detailed last time. So I'll leave it at that. We have a power differential in our work with clients. We know so much more about them than they do about us. And that creates a power dynamic. And it's important to try to balance that using autonomy supportive approaches um, that are listed there under how to balance power. Finally, uh, the next couple of slides, uh, just go over these concepts we talked about before. We all have emotional reactions to our clients. And these can be understood under the headings of transference and countertransference. Transference, again, is when a client is having unconscious reactions to the provider. And countertransference is when you as the provider are having unconscious reactions um, or other emotional reactions to a client that might be based on that client's behavior, but also might be triggering some uh, past experiences in your own life. Um, and these are really important to pay attention to. And the way we do that is we think about what are the clues that countertransference might be happening. And that's on the next slide. We have this list. I'm not going to go over. Um, it's, in, it's in the slides we went over last time. But we can have positive, negative, or kind of neutral clues about countertransference that we want to pay attention to and notice. Talked about boundary crossings and boundary violations. Um, and boundary violations, to remind you, are when uh, someone is causing another person direct harm. Um, boundary crossings are a little bit, are less intense in that way. They're, they're a little bit more of a gray area and it can feel 
um, a little bit more difficult to determine where the boundary is there. Um, and so we might unknowingly cross boundaries and then have to repair with a client. Um, they might cross our boundaries and we need to clarify what they are. These are opportunities for us to gain a better understanding of what the boundaries need to be for us and for our clients and how to communicate about them. So even though it feels really bad when this happens, it is an opportunity to enhance that working relationship you have with your client um, and can really help the client feel that they can trust you um, to, you know, provide the best support in a professional way. And that's really important. Finally, I just wanted to do a quick review on the next slide of our day one assignment. Would love to hear from folks in the chat um, what you thought about in the last two weeks. Um, were you able to think about reflective practices that you utilize? And would love to hear any examples. Um, some that we talked about were going to therapy, um, uh, having clinical supervision. Um, you could uh, talk with folks who also do this kind of work, but maybe not at your agency, like a peer consultation group. Uh, there are many ways. So would love to hear in the chat, what self-reflective practices have you been engaging in or thinking about engaging in? End of the day journaling, awesome. Con consulting with supervisor, excellent examples, thanks. Supervision and peer support, wonderful. Those are all great examples of ways to get reflective practices going in your practice of doing this work. Uh, meditation, I see listed, supervision and therapy, these are excellent. We also talked about noticing our own reactions when we're talking about this counter-transference, trying to understand when we're having an emotional reaction so that we can create space before we respond. Um, did anyone notice any clues that countertransference could have been happening? Learning when to say no. Yeah, that's a, a great thing that we will talk about uh, in this training. I don't think today, but maybe the next session. Lots of prayer, meditation, deep breathing. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. We'll have another assignment at the end today, and um, we'll uh, follow up next time. So uh, would love to hear more about your thoughts between sessions um, at our next one. And with that, I will uh, shift over to Elizabeth. Thanks, Chelsea. Um, all right. We're going to shift gears to new content. Um, as Chelsea was mentioning, we have this uh, FSP Foundations pathway that we see as sort of like, what, what's the core learning that would be helpful for someone starting an FSP or someone also who's a veteran in the field who's been in there for a while and just seems sort of like a getting back in touch with the, the basics, sort of the approach. Um, and so we have a, four pillars that we see as defining that. And the first one is recovery-oriented care. So if you checked out our foundations pathway, you would see that our core trainings are boundaries first and then recovery-oriented care next. And we'll be doing a live series on that in November. Chelsea and I will be facilitating that. Um, those are followed by trauma-informed care and harm reduction and then systems-oriented care. And we are just gonna talk about recovery-oriented care today uh, briefly to talk about why these two are related, what they have to do with each other. Um, so bridging from our conversation uh, two weeks ago, 
um, and Chelsea's review around power and boundaries and trauma-informed care, we want to frame the rest of the concepts today from recovery orientation. Um, so here's the definition. Uh, recovery is a process. It's not linear. Um, it's a process of change through which individuals improve their health and wellness, live a self-directed life, and strive to reach their full potential. Um, and there are a number of definitions of recovery. We're really sort of talking about the um, mental health recovery, uh, psychiatric disability sort of definition. I know people think of recovery from substance use, perhaps also, and there's tons of overlaps there. You can apply a recovery orientation to really recovery from anything, but the core components are around self-direction, it not being linear, um, really working alongside a person, being person-centered, um, and uh, yeah, mostly autonomy supportive. And we're gonna get into that a little bit further today. So here on this screen, we've got um, some stages of recovery, hope, empowerment, self-responsibility, and meaningful role. That is what our long training on recovery-oriented care goes into. And uh, it sounds like simple stuff, but when you break it down, it's really helpful to frame how uh, you can see, the, see someone's pathway in receiving services and their work towards recovery. Okay, so recovery-oriented care is also necessary because it recognizes that people experience stigma and trauma, labeling and bias. Uh, we'll talk more about stigma and bias shortly, but for now, let's focus first on what autonomy support looks like, especially when there is risk to the client's well-being, um, and that can impact how you respond to them and most certainly impacts how you navigate, how you set, navigate, and maintain boundaries with them. All right, so this is a slide we have in a number of our trainings because it's just so broadly applicable to the work that you do. You work with people that are in situations uh, that involve risk, right? You work with people who are um, unwell for any myriad of, re of reasons, maybe are involved in uh, live in settings that uh, contain risk, engage in behaviors that contain risk, um, have health care, like physical health risk factors. Um, I'm sure you can add to that list. Um, so when we're working with folks that um, are, I don't know, I hate saying at risk or engage in risky behaviors because I feel like those are labels, uh, but there's really not a better way to do it. <laughs> so folks that are in risky situations or engage in risky behaviors um, and you are working with them and your goal is to support them to be well and to help keep them safe, there's sort of this uh, dilemma that comes up. Um, how do you do that without being sort of uh, paternalistic or overprotective? Um, and how do you do it with also not being too hands-off and neglectful, um, as we see on this continuum here, um, and uh, having sort of too loose of an approach with folks? So the dignity of risk concept comes into play here um, alongside this continuum of doing too little or doing too much, the overprotect and neglect continuum. Um, and the dignity of risk concept is really important because it's kind of the thing we're navigating that's really confusing and a huge gray area in this within this other gray area that we're navigating, all of the decisions on um, how intense or how not intense to uh, engage with someone. So the dignity of risk concept is also called the right to fail. You may have heard it spoken about that way um, or uh, therapeutic risk maybe also. And this is very much about respecting a client's boundaries via their autonomy 
it's based on the premise that folks must be allowed to make their own decisions and learn from their success or failure. Uh, if we take it away, that can erode their dignity. And we know that people have a greater chance of recovering uh, from mental illness um, or really anything else in life if they have dignity and self-efficacy, if they are making changes in their lives and they are the decision maker, they are the one enacting that. That's really critical for any form of recovery or wellness. Um, and this is not just like a clinical thing, like you can imagine it in your own life. Like if anyone has ever told you not to do something because there's risk involved, like it's gonna turn out bad. Um, and then you did it anyways, and it maybe did turn out bad, but you had the opportunity to learn from it. And you might, you wouldn't have had that opportunity to learn. And you would have just been in a state of unknowing and sort of disempowerment had you just followed what someone told you to do uh, because there's risk involved. That's kind of what we're talking about here. So like, let's say you're you're interested in getting into a relationship with someone, your friends are telling you this is a bad idea, you get into it anyway, you crash and burn, you know, X amount of time later, but you learn so much, you learn so, so much. And the next time you're in a relationship or the next time you're selecting a romantic partner, you're gonna have that learning to bring on board and you wouldn't have had it if you didn't sort of do what you felt you need to do. Um, so those are like, you know, sort of lay examples of it. And then same with, uh, the same applies to folks around care decisions, um, people using substances and deciding how to navigate that, people deciding whether to take medication or not, uh, whether they are okay with going into shelter or not. These are all things that it's pretty obvious the risks to us, right? We know the risks of someone using substances. We know the risk of someone who probably needs medication choosing to go off of it because they want to try a period of being off of it. Um, at the same time, what we have to do is work with someone to help them weigh out the risks and benefits, make an informed decision, but still have it be their decision. Okay, and just as a general rule of thumb, like as providers, we often overestimate the risk involved and sort of underestimate folks just natural resiliency um, and the fact that they can survive a whole hell of a lot. Um, and that comes from a place of compassion, that urge to overprotect, to sort of uh, bubble wrap someone and keep, keep them from making the wrong decisions. That is coming from a really good place. It's not coming from, well, maybe for some folks, it's coming from a place of wanting to control others, but I bet not for most of you. I imagine that is a symptom of burnout for sure, if that's coming up. But <laughs> for most folks, it's coming from, I care about you. I want to keep you safe. I want to keep working with you. And then just sort of in this, um, you know, non-intuitive way, the way to keep people working with us is to not overprotect them. Okay, so looking at the slide we've got on the left side here, whoopsies neglect and doing too little, it's her choice, we are supposed to support choice, let her do what she wants on the right, overprotect, we can get her to do the right thing, arrange things for her so she has to do it our way. Um, and in the middle, we have these skills that can be used to navigate sort of sitting in the middle here and honoring the dignity of risk or considering it at least. These are sort of, uh, these are not concrete concepts. These are not, um, they're not really, none of this is objective. <laughs> All of it is subjective in how we think about the, in, in the application of it and just in sort of defining what these things are. Okay, so why does all of this matter for boundaries? Um, when we do too much for someone, we risk burnout and we risk setting a precedent that can't be sustained um, by the nature of our roles. 
we risk uh, setting expectations and then extending beyond them and then, you know, kind of uh, having a, a confusion occur around boundaries. And when we do too little, we likely have said we'll do something and then we aren't doing it. Um, that's also an issue around expectation setting and lack of consistency. Um, and so when we're thinking about this, we want to create boundaries that are respective of the time and efforts that we can actually offer and being consistent with that. But also um, there's this other piece to it, this sort of emotional piece um, where we want to stay in a space where we are able to stay empathically engaged with someone as well and not overextend empathically or underextend empathically because neither are gonna be helpful in the long run. I'm just gonna check the chat. The client, client gets used to a case manager doing everything for them. They end up losing because they're not learning or being empowered. Yeah, it is so tough to stay in this middle area because um, sometimes, you know, if you are working with someone and they're going through a really rough time, sometimes you do have to do a little bit more um, if they've been in crisis or if you're initially working with someone. Um, you, they might not have the skill set yet. They might not have the resources set up and you are doing some heavy lifting. Uh, and so with that, any way that you can be sort of transparent with someone and saying like, this is what we're doing right now. Here's the expectation for the future can sort of safeguard that. Um, so if you find yourself doing everything for someone, it's got to be special circumstance and it's got to be communicated. Otherwise, you might be getting yourself into something that's hard to back out of. And it is hard to back out of those situations. All right. So stigma and bias. Why do these matter? Anyone want to venture a guess why we care? Recovery orientation cares about stigma and bias. It acknowledges that it exists and that it impacts care. Um, so that's one piece. But why do we care about it for boundaries? Why, where would stigma and or bias come into play around managing boundaries with clients? And I'll just go through defining them real quick and you're welcome to uh, respond in the chat as I go through. So stigma is a negative social attitude attached to a characteristic of an individual that may be regarded as a mental, physical, or social deficiency. It implies social disapproval and can lead unfairly to discrimination against and exclusion of the individual. All right, now bias, there are two types of bias. We have implicit and explicit. So explicit is um, the stuff that we uh, are aware of. It's prejudice, you know, it's, it's something that we like are... We're, we're aware that we actually just judge this person or don't like this person based off of their of a certain characteristic um, or a stereotype or something like that. Uh, that's explicit bias. Uh, implicit bias is kind of what we're going to talk about a little more today. Um, and that's outside of our awareness. So that's stuff that we uh, might be informing how we uh, how we think, feel or treat a client or another person in the world. Um, but we're not actually fully aware of it. Um, all of these are kind of normal, like people have explicit biases, whether that's right or wrong, and they definitely have implicit biases. I think most of us in helping fields would love to believe that we have none of these because all we wanna do is do good. Um, but the reality is like we grew up in an environment that was informed by stereotypes, by weird cultural messaging, um, by um, historical trauma, like there's there's so much that can inform how implicit bias develops. So really wanna normalize that, not villainize it. It's a thing, uh, we all gotta sort of work to uncover it. And then when we realize we have them, challenge them. All right, I'm gonna check the chat here. Okay, so when there's 
stigma and bias, we can fall into the fallacy of thinking we know best. Okay, we can, yeah, we can take on that expert lens and then have it kind of go unchallenged. Really good point. You're saying if we hold unconscious biases, it can impact the way we treat others, rigid or loose boundaries. Absolutely. Uh, it can affect how we interact with them. Great. Um, so if we're holding uh, a bias informed by stigma against someone um, or an aspect of that person, uh, we might not, well, A, we might just miss a lot of what's going on with them because there's a part of us that wants to move away from them. Typically, when people hold implicit bias about um, sort of an aspect of someone, and these are really common around like race, gender, sexual orientation, disability, age, um, maybe other health conditions or health behaviors, um, culture, we will not be as curious. And when we're not as curious, we're not engaging empathically as much and we are missing things. We're not doing as thorough of an assessment. We are not sort of looking at a person in a in as expansive as a way as we should be. Um, so that's part of it. And now what would be the difference between bias and counter-transference, do you think? They sound kind of similar. We're having sort of reactions to an individual that impacts how we might uh, work with them or respond to them emotionally, and thus uh, how much we want to engage with them or not. What do you all think? What's the difference then between implicit bias and counter-transference? And can both happen at the same time also? Okay, we got a yes. All right, interested in your thoughts on this. Um, so implicit bias is really non-selective to an individual. It, it's going to apply to everyone that has that sort of feature that you have implicit bias about, that you have some judgment around. Um, Countertransference is going to be more specific to uh, a person, like an actual um, individual. Okay, countertransference is a response and bias is a belief. That's it. Yeah. Okay. I can follow that distinction. Uh, countertransference is in more during and internal. I'm not following that phrasing, but I, if you rephrase or maybe it'll click for me in just a moment. Um, okay. During an internal experience. Got it. All right. Good thoughts. So if here's an example, if I have an implicit bias about uh, those who use substances and that implicit bias is informed from growing up in an environment where um, I was taught to uh, judge and have a bias against that, very simply put, maybe I grew up in the just say no era, which I did. Um, and maybe I had a few personal experiences or uh I was involved in some cultural institutions that really reinforced that. So I'm, you know, I'm working as a social worker. I work with people who use substances. I try to be non-judgmental, but really I've got a lot of implicit bias about it. That's one thing. Um, now let's say I start working with someone who it reminds me of a family member who really struggled with substances. Um, and I start to see the facets of this family member, maybe it's a parent or a sibling, and this client, that's counter-transference if I'm then responding to those specific attributes. So both can occur at the same time. It sounds like a lot to tease apart, doesn't it? Um, but that is the work that we have to do because that's going to directly impact um, how, how the dynamics of how I'll work with them um, in full, but especially around boundaries. Um, there's a chance that I could want to cope with that counter-transference by moving closer to the person and replicating a helping relationship that I had in the past. Or perhaps I want to move away from them because I'm uncomfortable with their behavior. I have some judgment around it. 
All right, so going back just a wee bit to coping with our clients' risk. Um, so it's a rule of just a, a constant that people we work with will be uh, subject to risk uh, and will do things that we think are risky um, and will frighten us uh, or frustrate us. Um, we think of this in the world of motivational interviewing as a writing reflex also. If anyone's ever heard of that, that's sort of the tendency to want to step in and like tell someone what they should do. Um, and again, it does not mean that you don't have the knowledge and expertise because you probably do know what someone should do. Um, but it's really counterproductive because it um, takes away their autonomy and can really impact the amount of trust and good rapport that you have with that person. So with risk, we are thinking about the writing reflex taking over, um, that sort of not honoring the dignity of risk taking over, beliefs-based agendas or implicit biases taking over covertly also. Um, so these are all things that can come up around risk. Um, we got to remain aware of our counter-transference and our burnout levels. Uh, with burnout, we see, and Chelsea will talk about this in just a minute, uh, high potential for neglect. Some people might respond to burnout with overprotection, sort of overactivation, overdoing, um, not being able to sort of identify where the balance is, not how, not being able to see where the middle ground is between overprotect and neglect. Um, but I think more commonly, um, there's a tendency to move towards neglect when we're burnout because we just don't want to do. We've lost sort of the meaning in the work and we're tired. Um, Impulses to overprotect are also an aspect of this uh, in terms of coping with our clients' risk. We have to check our expectations around client change. That's a, a huge, that's what makes doing any of this possible uh, is not just sitting back and checking our biases, our judgments, any internalized stigma, whatever. It's also around like, if you're new to the field, for example, or if you remember being new to the field, you might've thought you would get people like better, you know, real quick uh, that, you were going to be able to help so many people that you had this like maybe a secret power or something that would ensure that that occurred and that, oh, gosh, I'm not doing my job well if that's not happening. Not so. Um, and those who have worked in the field longer have probably come to realize that you got to really lower your expectations on how quickly people reach stability or uh, milestones in their recovery. Uh, that it is not linear, that it's more like, you know, a few steps forward, a few back roller coaster, any analogy of just non-linearity, um, that's more of what we're working with. Uh, and so even when we're, we might have that, like, you know, we're really hoping that person goes to rehab and stays. Um, and we're really hoping that then what they learn there sticks. Uh, if we overinvest in that hope and don't stay aware of it and check it, we're probably going to be really disappointed and that can impact again how we navigate boundaries with that person and how stressed out we get um so we'll save ourselves some stress and some risk of burnout when we really just sort of just stay in a place of non-expectation it's okay to have hope but it's also important to not let that uh, seep over into expectation yes i'm new to the field and boy was i surprised yeah, they don't cover that in grad school or any school, do they? They don't tell you like it's it's slow as molasses. You're not you're not going to see uh, the sort of tangible, you know, changes that you you think you will um, when you're learning how to do therapy or case management or things like that. And that is just because it's influenced by so many factors, not just, you know, the client's sort of capacity. Um, there's so many, so many barriers, so many challenges. 
um, you know, even just within working on your teams right now, I know most teams are understaffed and like how, how you can <laughs> work with folks under those conditions and uh, try to support them towards uh, recovery goals is very, very challenging. Yeah, especially with high acuity folks, absolutely. Yeah, so we can't put that on ourselves, you know, can't, can't blame yourself, you can't blame the client. It's just sort of the reality of working with folks who have a lot of challenges and have likely been underserved um, and mistreated by multiple systems and environments. This is the reality of it and you're doing good work. All right, so here's a, a quick tool to use when you find yourself absolutely stressed out because you've got clients who are engaging in risky behaviors and you're trying to stay in that middle of the continuum, but you're not sure and you're having all sorts of reactions, uh, loads of countertransference or uh, whatever is coming up for you that just makes it so there's a lot to process and not being able to see sort of a situation very clearly. One, we have to re reply, uh, rely on things like reflective supervision or any other reflective process. But two, when things are out of our control, we have to make peace with that. And radical acceptance is a distress tolerance skill from DBT, Dialectical Behavior Therapy. Um, some of you may be familiar with that. We're not going to go into it in depth, but it's a really good option for when you're doing the work to sort of sort out all this, uh, all this difficult, am I doing my job? How much should I do my job in this way? How do I manage my fears? How do I manage my emotional reactions? How do I check my biases? All that work um, for the things that you're still dealing with uh, a lack of control over someone's trajectory, their wellness, uh, what's gonna happen to them. Radical acceptance rests on letting go of that illusion that we have control. Um, and it involves a willingness to just notice and accept things as they are uh, in the present moment without judgment. So it's a tough skill. And I have a little training on radical acceptance. I think that's recorded and I do it once a year too. So if you're interested in a deeper dive, that's available to you. Um, but here we have a little equation um, doing that really hard work of overprotect, neglect awareness, honoring the dignity of risk, looking for bias and tra counter-transference, entering into the scene, plus radical acceptance is gonna reduce your potential for burnout and keep you able to do this work. You do not have to be perfect in doing this work. You just have to be striving to navigate all of this as best you can. So radical acceptance is really well reflected in the serenity prayer, which many of you may be familiar with from 12 Step. Um, I guess the quote comes from someone many, many moons ago. Also, I'm forgetting <laughs> um, the history on that. But anyway, uh, the serenity prayer goes, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And uh, there are no words more applicable to sort of the name of the game here and this realm of uh, relating to clients and risk and managing boundaries in accordance with that. Okay, I hand it back over to you, Chelsea. Thanks, Elizabeth. I always love the reminder about um, radical acceptance and the serenity prayer. It's just a very easy way to connect the two concepts for me. So thanks for that. Um, so we talked a bit about burnout, burnout prevention, boundaries help with that. Um, what are we talking about when we're talking about burnout? Um, so burnout is the psychological syndrome emerging as a prolonged response to chronic interpersonal stressors on the job. So having 
ongoing interpersonal stressors through your work can um, have an impact on how you're feeling about your work, how you're showing up in your work. And this can look like three, these three aspects of burnout, emotional exhaustion, decreased personal accomplishment, that sense of that, and also um, depersonalization. So emotional exhaustion, that's when we have a loss of emotional resources. Um, we just don't feel like we have that uh, ability to come back from having uh, something impact us emotionally. We don't know, we're uh, exhausted, unable to cope. Um, and that can lead to feeling unable to deal with your client and work demands. Uh, depersonalization is about having this like devaluation of individuals. You're, you've lost empathy for your clients as full people, full, full human beings. Um, you might start or one might start viewing your clients as cases as you know the issues that they have instead of the people that they are I mean you kind of take away those personal characteristics and this can also look like um you know having this insatiable need to vent about clients um but if we want to vent so much about uh what's going on at work maybe tell these really intense stories a lot um use a lot of humor maybe it's cynicism and sarcasm disguised as humor to try to get through it. You know, that's what we're talking about when we think of depersonalization as an aspect of burnout. And then there's decreased career satisfaction um, or decreased personal accomplishment. Um, and so we might start doubting the meaning of our work, you know, like Elizabeth was talking about this, um, you know, the time frame that it takes for things to improve with our clients um, can be longer than we're working with them, right? We're, we often can be just a blip in their life of helping them for this amount of time. Um, and there's a lot ahead of them and a lot behind them. And so, uh, you know, feeling like, oh, you know, taking what has happened with clients and not seeing progress that maybe you really wish for them. And that might make you feel less accomplished. You know, this sentiment was expressed a little bit in the chat. You know, we can really put the onus on ourselves to really transform someone's lives when we don't have that power. It turns out we all have the power to over our own behaviors, right? Um, so those are three aspects of what burnout can look like. Um, it really shows that there's both like what you're in, what the individual, like you as a provider are experiencing combined with what is going on in the system that might be impacting how you're able to cope with all these factors that contribute to burnout. Um, burnout is different from other things that we're going to get into next. You might be thinking of terms like vicarious trauma, secondary traumatic stress, compassion fatigue, and those are all a little bit different. 
Um, burnout doesn't necessarily mean that we, our whole view of the world has changed. That's like a symptom, can be a symptom of PTSD, which can also be related to vicarious trauma, which I'll get into in just a minute. Um, so if we're experiencing burnout, we might not have, it might not be um, impacting our whole worldview. Um, it might not mean that we don't feel compassion for others. It might be easier to resolve than some other more intense uh, reactions we might have to the work. So keep that in mind. All right, and the reason we talk about burnout like this is because we want to be able to identify what's going on for us so that um, we can also take charge of our own well-being and identify, okay, I'm, yeah, I'm aligning with some of this. What do I do about it? Um, and so I also want to talk about the other helper reactions we could have. So I mentioned uh, these three things, vicarious trauma, secondary traumatic stress, and compassion fatigue. And one thing I just want to get out of the way is that all these terms, there's so many terms, and if you're like me, it's hard for me to keep them straight in my mind, which one means what. And so I just want to let everyone off the hook. You don't have to know the exact definition or the exact term. Um, the goal here is to really uh, increase your uh, ability to notice when these things are happening and understand that it's a normal reaction to uh, witnessing um, what clients might be going through, engaging in this work over a period of time. Um, and so we don't necessarily have to get these definitions squared away and always know it, exactly what the terms mean. But what we do wanna be able to do is notice when things like this are happening. So just think of these as like examples of what could be going on for you in the work that you might be doing. So vicarious trauma is the emotional residue, which I really like that phrase, left after hearing traumatic stories and survivors' feelings of pain, fear, and terror. Um, and this can change how you might see yourself, others, and the world. So that's vicarious trauma. It's really hearing these stories um, of other people's traumatic experiences, and that just leaves this emotional residue on you and kind of starts to change how you might um, experience and view the world. Secondary traumatic stress is um, the shortcut in my brain, I think about it, is that it's very similar to PTSD, except you did not um, experience the trauma directly. So it would be trauma-related stress reaction resulting from exposure to another individual's traumatic experiences rather than from exposure directly to a traumatic event. And they mimic those of the symptoms mimic those of PTSD. Some of those are nightmares and flashbacks, hypervigilance, avoidance, etc. And so for these top two, if you think of that compared to the descriptions of burnout, you can see that maybe when you're experiencing burnout, there's a little bit more, um, a little bit less intensity to your reactions, um, which means maybe it's a easier time to, um, or a better time, I would ideally, to notice that it's happening so that you can prevent uh, it from getting more intense. You know, burnout, um, might be easier to come up with a plan to tackle. Whereas vicarious trauma, second, secondary traumatic stress, this might, you might need more intensive um, work to uh, keep 
to cope with these situations. Um, you know, you might want um, additional support for these. Uh, you, you, uh, and when you're experiencing burnout, that is of course also uh, helpful. Um, but I'm just trying to explain that there is a spectrum of responses uh, and reactions and, um, you know, maybe emotional consequences of doing the work that are uh, understood in different ways. Finally, we have compassion fatigue. And compassion fatigue is a profound emotional and physical erosion that takes place when helpers are unable to refuel and regenerate. Um, some may consider this to be the collective bucket that vicarious and secondary traumatic stress fit in, um, and some may be also burnout. Um, but compassion fatigue, I think about that, that word fatigue, you're feeling incredibly drained, fatigued, unable to give, give anymore. Um, that could be to your family, your friends, your loved ones. It could be to your clients, to your colleagues. Um, you might also just be kind of ruminating, unable to stop think about, thinking about what has been going on with your clients when you're not at work. And so maybe you're not able to engage in uh, your personal life and, you know, have like a balance. Um, so that's what we mean when we say uh, compassion fatigue. So when we put it all together, we've got vicarious trauma, compassion fatigue, and secondary traumatic stress. They do lack a consistent conceptual clarity and are often used interchangeably. So, um, you know, like I was saying, don't get too hung up on, on the term itself, but really what, uh, what that impact is. Um, burnout, unlike the other three, are is not trauma specific and it overlaps less. Like I was saying before, we have a spectrum of reactions and burnout um, doesn't necessarily have to be about trauma. People can experience burnout uh, in a number of different industries. You know, it's not just a social worker, uh, case manager, mental health thing. Um, so that's a good thing to uh, remember. And then there are some ways that we can, uh, that there are some things that impact the way that we are able to deal with all of these reactions. We've got reflective supervision, like we've talked about before, workplace supportiveness. You know, I've been on a number of teams and, you know, some were more supportive than others. And I felt that my own reactions to the work were very much uh, impacted by the environment I was in. When I was in an unsupportive environment, uh, my burnout was higher, as were my, um, you know, compassion fatigue was coming in. Um, when I was in a more supportive environment where I could really engage in self-reflection about, um, you know, the challenges that I was experiencing in hearing um, about all of the trauma my clients had experienced, it really made me feel more resilient, more empowered. And, um, you know, just like we were talking about earlier, where you might have an idea when you get into this field of really helping to encourage dramatic changes in people's lives. And then it's, it can feel really disappointing. And like, it's your fault if a big, huge change doesn't happen. Um, 
that that's a, a normal experience. But if we're able to talk with others about it, uh, it can it can become more normalized so that we don't take that on and have it impact how confident we feel in the work that we're doing. Um, when we have more confidence, uh, we're able to have more creativity, like we were talking about before, is so important for being uh, recovery oriented um, and autonomy supporting. So um, it's really good to be able to do these things, uh, to have good reflective supervision, to have workplace supportiveness. And if you're lacking some of these things, it's, it's also possible to find those elsewhere, peer consultation groups, um, find maybe you know people on other teams that you would want to talk to about um, experiences. Uh, if your particular team doesn't feel supportive at the moment. Um, so there's always, it's like we we're saying at the very beginning, it's not, uh, it's not concrete exactly what to do, but there, that's why boundaries can be difficult because we do live in this gray area. And sometimes we have to also tackle our own, uh, our own development, our own resilience uh, by going outside of what is provided to us. Um, not how it should be, obviously. We should all be getting the best supervision, have a very supportive team, but there are systems, uh, there are systemic issues that impact all of this. And so we're trying to do the best we can with what we have and maintain that openness. Other things that can impact these uh, reactions you might have to the work is your own personal trauma history. Um, and really personal history that could relate to anything that might be going on with your clients, you know, like Elizabeth's example earlier about maybe if you had substance use uh, in your family and how that impacted you, you might carry that, that could impact your, um, your, it could impact whether or how intensely you experience any of these things like vicarious trauma and compassion fatigue. Um, and then finally, coping capacity. We all have different uh, capacities. I had a therapist once talk about the window. It was like a window of uh, basically capacity to deal with something that's impacting your emotions. Um, and it can it shrinks or grows depending on what you've been through. So if you've been through a whole lot, you might have a, a smaller window uh, where you your emotions are you're able to cope easily. But if you have a lot of issues that you've gone through or trauma history, then your window might not um, be as big. And so you might have emotional reactions in a place where other people don't. But And that's not a judgment or um, that doesn't mean there's something bad about anybody. It just means that um, we got to pay attention to ourselves. Window of tolerance. Yes, thank you both. <laughs> Appreciate you. Yes. Um, wish I had thought of the correct words earlier. But yeah, I find that a helpful thing to think about often. So someone brought up in the chat earlier that it can be difficult when um, clients challenge our boundaries or maybe engage in behaviors that we find challenging that evoke some sort of emotional response from us. Um, and so you know, this might look like a client asking repeatedly for things you can't do, right? You've said no 
in a, you know, in the best way that you knew how, and they keep asking and asking and asking. Or um, another challenging behavior might be a client who avoids your visits. You know, they you you schedule something and they don't show up. They don't answer the door when you're knocking, you know, that could be really challenging when you're really trying to engage. Um, there could also be, you know, some of the most challenging things that we can encounter can be folks who have uh, histories of self-harm or suicide attempts or suicidal ideation. You know, that can be really challenging. It's extremely intense. It feels very urgent and um and that can you know get all our uh get us into an emotional place of panic maybe instead of being uh the professional that we are hoping to be and helping uh support folks through these really scary situations um so those are just some examples um that you know come off the you know, when i thought of challenging behaviors. Um, another one might be uh, inconsistent regards. Someone on one day thinks you're the best worker they've ever had. And then the next time you see them, that you're the worst. Um, that could be really challenging to have that, uh, you know, shown to you. So um, what do we do when, when these challenging behaviors come up? We kind of have to step back from our own emotional reactions and think about what's behind these behaviors. People learn to get their needs met in different ways, including us, including our clients, everyone. You know, if um, sometimes I've heard people talk about clients acting entitled, or I think that's the big word, but I, I always have a hard time when I hear that um, because when I think when we say entitled, we could flip it. I think people talk about this as though, you know, a client has too high of expectations for what they get, they should get. And what we want to think about instead is what, like, why would someone do something like that? Um, why would they call me repeatedly, uh, it, even though I told them I won't answer if they do that? This is uh probably a behavior that's worked for them in the past you know there's a perfect purpose for this challenging behavior if someone has had 14 case managers in three years they've probably had to hound a couple people to get a hold of them and so that is the method that works for them um or when people aren't listening to um a client and so they feel they need to raise their voice a lot you know there are there's a purpose that we can uncover um and when we try to understand that people get their needs met in different ways and identify what the purpose of the behavior can be, that can help us to manage our own emotional reactions in order to uh, have more compassion and be more trauma-informed um, by understanding that this isn't just someone behaving in any sort of way for no reason. There's a reason why uh, people use uh, different methods to, to get things done. Um, and then uh, I see survival behaviors. Exactly. A lot of these behaviors have helped people survive until now. Um, and so we can't, I, I don't, you know, in some 
situations, I might want to have some judgments about that, but really this has worked for them in some capacity. In the long term, probably not working great for them, but in the short term, it, it does have a purpose and that can be helpful to um, manage our own emotions about it. And so what we wanna do is we wanna look out for our own, um, well, we wanna look out for stigma, which we can identify. We wanna look out for our own biases and countertransference that might be happening um, when clients are crossing boundaries. And so it's not just what is the client doing and it's wrong, it's what is informing this whole scenario. Just wanting to really understand what is happening for you and what is happening for the client. All right, so some boundary skills that we can uh, work on to address all the things we've talked about in these concepts today um, are we've got self-awareness, becoming self-aware, we've got time management and worry management, radical acceptance, and the importance of consultation and consistency. So when we're talking about improving or increasing our self-awareness, we wanna identify what feelings precede instances of neglect or overprotect, that continuum that Elizabeth talked about earlier, which I always, I, I'm just so grateful for that concept because it really helps me kind of gauge where am I in this spectrum. Um, and so hopefully helpful for you all as well. So what feelings might be coming up when we want to avoid and potentially neglect our clients, when we want to rescue, become the superhero, jump in, take care of everything, what feelings are going on when that's happening? Another way to increase self-awareness would be to uh, ground ourselves in person-centered autonomy support. And so how, how do we do this while we're experiencing these feelings of overprotect or countertransference? Um, so what we want to do is meet clients where they are, um, where part of recovery orientation is uh, person-centered autonomy support. So we meet clients where they're at and we reinforce the fact that they get to choose what they do and how they cope and how the relationship that you have together, this helping relationship, how it's helpful. Um, we also can't force clients to do anything. We talked about this earlier. We can't force anybody, right? I'm sure if any of you have tried to control other people in your lives, um, usually it does not work. Um, and so what we, what can we do? Instead, we can listen to what our clients need and help them gain awareness of opportunities that can help. Um, we can make receiving the resources and services that we know about and are, are connecting them to easier. Um, you know, we can show clients that they have choices. Um, uh, you know, and that, and when we help clients see that there are choices, when sometimes there might not appear to be choices, this can take away from the feeling of you know, you have to have all the right answers for you. And for the client, it gives them the feeling that they um, are choosing the direction that they wanna go in. And so this can, you know, this can build empowerment uh, for clients and can, uh, you know, take away from the, the 
or reduce the likelihood of a dependency situation like we were talking about before where we might be doing too much for a client and in doing so take away the opportunity for them to develop these skills to you know increase their autonomy their independence their ability to um to access uh, services and resources independently, which is the ultimate goal, right? We want everyone to be able to get their needs met. Um, and so that's uh, another element of self-awareness is just really taking in this concept of we, we don't have the control, but what we can control is how we present information and how we listen to our clients. Um, Another way to become self-aware is to really explore our own experiences of bias and stigma, you know, thinking about how they've impacted us personally. Um, and then also exploring our own explicit and implicit biases, biases, and how they affect clients. Um, you know, we we had that example that Elizabeth shared about, you know, maybe explicit or implicit biases around substance use, just exploring these and understanding them can really help us to gain self-awareness and remove that uh, judgment that might come up based on our background training. And I mean that in like our family training or, or community training. Um, and so those are some ways to become self-aware. We also, uh, another uh, boundary skill to work on might be time and worry management, um, which is always funny to me as a concept of managing worry. It's very uh, difficult. Thanks, Elizabeth. Um, so we want to pay attention to how much time we're spending with clients and the time we're thinking about them. And we also want to figure out or make sure, ensure that we're providing services equitably. So thinking about um, dividing our time between our different clients and their different needs uh, is a good thing to think about. And then we have radical acceptance as a tool um, that Elizabeth presented is a wonderful way to enhance our ability to cope with uncertainty and empathic strain. And as we have been saying this whole time, consultation, super important. Uh, to get other people's perspectives and consistency um, of doing, showing up when we say we're going to and doing what we're going to and consistently trying to think about how to uh, become more self-reflective and uh, become more recovery oriented. We're going to jump into a vignette now to talk about how these boundary situations might look in real life, real work life. So we'll start with this one, Ian and Kevin. <clears throat> so I'll read through the bullet points and then we will have some questions for discussion. And we're gonna get um, just a little bit of the story at a time, like last time. So we'll learn more as we move forward. So Ian is a 35 year old white cisgender man and Kevin is a 63 year old white cis man. Kevin lives in an encampment and gets in frequent fights with neighbors, resulting in multiple recent hospitalizations and arrests. Ian helps Kevin get a phone. Kevin calls Ian repeatedly while Ian is with another client, leaves multiple minutes long messages calling Ian a bad worker 
and threatening to contact Ian's boss, the director of the organization, and the mayor if he doesn't call him back immediately. Ian returns the call, attempts de-escalation, and Kevin hang up, hangs up on him. When Ian and Kevin next speak on the phone, Kevin has only positive things to say to Ian, including no one helps me out but you. Ian feels annoyed, pressured, and defensive when Kevin calls. He puts off calling him back and avoids extra steps to locate him during outreach. So, wondering, we have some discussion questions and we'll probably go back and forth, so sorry about that in advance. Um, but what might Ian, why might Ian be avoiding Kevin or why might a provider avoid a client in this way? And we would love to hear from you in the chat. And uh, you can go back to the previous slide and I'll ask the question again. So why might Ian be avoiding Kevin? Because of Kevin's inconsistent behaviors? Yes. Don't want to have an uncomfortable conversation. Yeah, we're a human beings pretty good at avoiding those. Feels unpredictable. Yeah, that can be really stressful uh, when things are unpredictable and some your response might be to avoid in like Kevin, uh, Ian here. Ian feels attacked and might have difficulty addressing that with himself and the client. I love that you included both. He's having difficulty addressing it himself, you know, really understanding what's going on for him and addressing it with the client, you know, maybe because he's avoiding it. Um, frustration, getting burnt out on clients, challenging behavior. Yep. Ian has not been capable of setting healthy boundaries with Kevin. He's struggling. Mm -hmm. Taking it personally. Yes, that is, uh, can be an easy thing to do. But also is something we can learn to not do as much. Uh, Maricruz, maybe Ian thinks Kevin is crying wolf or setting boundaries by not answering all calls, right? He might be trying to set some boundaries, but maybe it's not, uh, not working. And it, so he's using avoidance as a boundary, but it's not very direct, is it? I think we've all had Kevin's on our caseloads and it can be really challenging to, you know, continue to, uh, how do we say, uh, the clarify the boundaries, reiterate the boundaries, continue to reach out despite the inconsistent or, you know, kind of um, exaggerated responses um, or what might seem like an exaggeration to you in the moment. You know, we can have a lot of clients who have a lot of needs and have developed these methods to get them that can be really difficult for us to cope with. And so um, let's keep talking and see if we can, um, maybe maybe this can relate to a client issue that you've had before. Um, so what do you think about Ian's boundaries regarding Kevin? I heard a little bit about Maybe he's trying to have boundaries by avoiding. Any other thoughts about his boundaries? Or alternatively, where on the neglect over protect continuum is Kevin or is Ian the helper? See more towards neglect, more towards overprotect, neglect. 
Right. With the avoidance, right. Moving away from the client. Mm -hmm. And how I would love to know, how would you set a boundary with Kevin regarding his use of the phone and the language and tone of his calls? So the person who participated with your voice, I'm so sorry, my view right now, I, I, I didn't read your name. Um, I really appreciate you. And I'm sure Elizabeth will tell me who that was soon um, or, you know, later. But, um, you know, you were talking about how you set a boundary with your Kevin by saying I was with a client. So I could not speak with you. And he had a reaction that is not what you were hoping for, which was, okay, never mind. Never want to talk to you again, kind of response. And you said you're going to keep reaching out, right? So you're clarifying um, this boundary of, you know, I can only do what I can do as far as uh, being in touch with you when I have other clients on my caseload. And at the same time, um, trying not neglecting by not returning the call, but um, instead incorporating that consistency of continuing to uh, approach and reach out despite these challenges that you've experienced. Awesome. Okay, so moving forward with this duo, what we're going to learn a little bit more about what's going on here. So based on all of this, what changes in your view of this situation, if you know that Kevin reminds Ian of Ian's mother, for whom he is emotionally and financially responsible. Ian's mother is often volatile with Ian, accusing him of not caring for her one day and being his savior the next. Ian's relationship with his mother is so distressing to him that he moved to California from the Midwest to get some physical distance from her. Since he moved, Ian's mother has been calling him nonstop, even during work hours, despite his attempts to protect his time at work. So what does that change for folks? And we have some discussion questions on the next slide. I see maybe validate his frustrations. That can be a good way to connect with what's going on um, underneath the surface for Kevin. Uh, maybe that could increase the connection. I like that. And saying counter-transference. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate your perspective. You know, there, there are times when a transfer is possible and is helpful, you know, um, I can think of a, a couple of times that I've had clients that I transferred to another worker on my team and it was positive. Um, however, uh, like you are saying, there are lots of instances where, um, you know, other workers might feel like they're being, um, you know, getting all the clients dumped on them kind of feeling, or there might be situations where you feel like your clients um, are where... If you are transferring, you're just reenacting that abandonment again. Um, and I'm really glad you brought up this, like, you know, this transference could be happening because of their previous experiences in their personal life, but also in their work with other helpers, right? The, these uh, experiences of burnout, of vicarious trauma, of compassion fatigue, um, these have real impacts. And so um, they're is a pretty good chance that the clients we've worked with have worked with helpers who were not at their best capacity to be supporting them 
Um, and so we kind of have to make up for that sometimes too. So um, I really uh, am glad you all brought up these different ways that we could deal with this situation. Um, it is fraught, it's difficult, and it's hard to know when to move forward and how to do that. And that's working with your team and bringing in other people can really help um, and if you know, you're trying to keep your client consistently supported and it feels like too much for you, leaning on your team can be a really great solution in lieu of just transferring a client. So thanks for that. Um, speaking of teams, how could Ian's team help? How could Ian's team help him get through this situation? I'm seeing and, a comment in the chat. Well, you worked with a team of seven case managers and you would rotate your caseload once a month. Wow, that's, that's pretty cool. That is cool. And that's great because then there's consistency of having different people. So it's mm -hmm. not like someone's just left hanging um, and it's unpredictable. And uh, and then I see, I was often the person that difficult clients would be transferred to. My question to the other folks was how can the team member change their perspective to work effectively with our clients? Yeah, a lot of this work is onus is on us to figure out how to deal um, and how to get the support we need in order to do that effectively. All right, I wanna make sure that we have time um, for our other vignette. So let's move okay. forward and talk about a different scenario. Thanks so much for your participation. Yeah, it's um, it this is such a common scenario, <laughs> um, and there are so many pieces of it. The countertransference, um, how you know maybe Ian's just burnt out, and so his threshold for dealing with that, um, with that sort of inconsistent or angry behavior directed towards him is something he can't not personalize. Um, whereas if he weren't dealing with his mother, weren't having that countertransference. Maybe he would be able to say, OK, this is about this person. This has nothing to do with me. And when we are in that space, a lot bounces off much more. We don't absorb it in the same way. All right. This is a sort of in-depth vignette. Um, I am not certain that we'll get through all aspects of it. I think I'll try and zero in on the parts that are unique to this. Um, so Laura is a 28-year-old Latina cisgendered female, and George is a 53-year-old Black cisgendered male. George has been living in an encampment for 15 years. Uh, he was in a car accident that left him with chronic pain and mobility issues. Uh, he achieved disability benefits 10 years ago. Uh, he did construction work in his 20s and 30s prior to the accident. So he has a, a work history, he's been on disability, and he deals with chronic pain and mobility issues. George has complex health issues also, diabetes and congestive heart failure, as well as obesity um, and depression. He will go to the doctor, but he refuses mental health services. So he will only get his uh, physical health uh, um, issues treated. He's 6'2 and 300 pounds, and Laura spends program funds helping him get clothes and shoes that will fit his stature. Uh, those are not often available at clothing banks uh, just because of his unique fit. He wants housing, but only in his childhood neighborhood where it is avail unavailable and unaffordable. He has a goal of attending a vocational program once housed. George says that he may take his life if he can't get housing and threatens to stop working with Laura when she tries to intervene. Laura is considering starting a GoFundMe to pay for his initial housing costs in the area that he wants. Laura spends more time working with George than any other clients, 
and twice that much time worrying about him. All right. So let's start with the more specific questions. Um, with I think, I think we can see where Laura might be falling on the neglect over protect continuum uh, pretty easily. How can Laura manage her time better, um, both in how much time she spends working with George and thinking about George? So we've got her working with George more than any of her other clients and twice that time worrying about him. You're saying that she's on the overprotect side of the continuum. Yeah. Right. Really easy to fall onto that side. We've got uh, the client making threats that if she can't, you know, get him this unattainable thing, he's going to take his own life. And then he threatens to stop working with her when she tries to intervene around the suicidality. She is overstepping and overprotecting. George has survived in the encampment for 15 years. Excellent angle on this. So George's resilience is incredible. Um, what we see, what he is expressing verbally isn't necessarily what we've seen behaviorally. Okay, he's becoming too personal and needs to talk this over with a supervisor to come up with a plan. Her way is obvious to him and he is using that to his advantage. Perhaps, I think in many cases, this might be something that uh, people do in their general lives unknowingly, you know, not trying to be, again, this sort of like getting your needs met in the ways you may have learned that work without being necessarily fully aware of aspects of manipulation that could be occurring. So we like to think of it as non-manipulation, but yeah. All right, she could address the suicide, uh, suicidal ideation with getting another agency involved for the SI. That's an idea. Yeah, sort of division of labor. Okay, what do we think about the GoFundMe? We've already got Laura spending program funds on his clothing and shoes. Um, and I guess we're working from the assumption that there's a limit to the to the program fund. So she can't spend any more for housing. I know that might not be the case for various programs, but that's what we're working with here as an assumption. I'm gonna know. So Laura can think about client empowerment and talk about what he needs to do. Okay. Uh, develop a safety plan with him, allocate a time frame to work with him and stick strictly to that so she's not getting burnt out. Um yeah, it's not a bad idea for the GoFundMe, but explain to remember that this is not a stable income. Right. So her setting up the GoFundMe, though, what's the issue with that? If she does this for George, is, is that now a precedent set that she would have to fairly apply that level of effort across clients? Does he even want the GoFundMe? Very good point. Yeah. So she could provide him information on how he could do this himself, uh, maybe set him up with a computer. Um, but this isn't something that she should do. This is uh, sort of a fin financial um, boundary she's navigating there. So what changes, um, and again, this is a very multifaceted vignette. So we've got the financial boundaries, we've got the suicide non-assessment or assessment or intervention. Uh, we've got the housing navigation. Um, we've got the fact that George isn't engaging in mental health uh, services. He's just engaging in case management. He's put his foot down around that. Um, what changes if you know that Laura has past experiences with feeling suicidal herself? What could be going on there then? She's been a bit, you know, she's uh, decided to not engage around uh, the suicidal ideation because she doesn't want to lose him as a client, right? Counter-transference. Maybe she has had personal experiences that may or help are making it so she's over-identifying with not wanting that intervention, perhaps. We don't really know, but it's a possibility. Perhaps she had uh, difficult experiences. Okay, and another angle on this. So Laura is the daughter of immigrants who have worked many jobs through much adversity and cannot access and do not believe in disability benefits. 
what could be going on if that is the environment that she grew up in in terms of how she would relate to George and his goals and needs. Okay, when George is on disability, he has been for 10 years. He has some chronic conditions um, and uh, he's not, a not able to work uh, any sort of physical labor jobs, um, but he also wants to live in an area that's quite expensive. So perhaps this is some bias coming in. This is something that came from her rearing environment. Um, okay, yeah, maybe she has some bias because her parents did not rely on assistance. Yeah. So where we see her also have, going into some overprotect, you also start to see some themes of neglect maybe coming up here or potential for neglect. Um, she's stepping away from doing certain things with him um, while stepping towards doing other things with him. Um, and it's interesting to see where she's making these calls um, based off of her own experiences. She's not wanting to intervene in uh, the suicidality, um, perhaps maybe out of neglect or perhaps out of overprotect, considering on what aspect of her perspective or history you consider. Okay, we also have Laura feeling intense burnout and wants she, her wanting to change jobs, uh, but she feels she must stay on to help George. And we find Laura also fraught with deep ethical questioning, whether a person-centeredness could mean she should accept his wish to die, or if she should keep pressing for him to have his depression treated, risking engagement each time. She wonders how the dignity of risk concept fits when the risk is so great. So that's a complex part of this. Laura is burnt out and doing deep ethical questioning. What should Laura do in this situation? So you're saying Laura could use some supervision support to discuss her self-care needs, oxygen mask birth scenarios so she can understand the dynamics of caregiving. Yeah, right. And so what else could a team do in this situation? What's the team role to support Laura? Yeah. Yeah, I keep thinking if there are a team approach, it might be that someone managed housing, someone managed uh, the sort of gentle engagement around mental health and checking for uh, suicidal ideation. Um, since that's not something she can sort of see clearly on based off of her own experience. Yeah, reaching out to the team for feedback, separate task for each client, collaborating around the discussion of how to help George. Yeah, and we hope that Laura is talking about all of these aspects one way or another, um, but the suicidality, does Laura need to share that with her, 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 her history with suicidality? Does she need to share that with her team or her supervisor? Yeah, no, when we find ourselves having countertransference or reactions based off of our personal experiences or personal traumas, there's no need to speak directly in great detail about what that exactly is. We can find ways to phrase that in a way that says, I'm having a hard time because I've been through something having to do with this um, without giving all the detail so that we still have our safety as insofar as we need it um, with sharing our personal details. But she does need to say something. Okay, we've got just a couple of minutes left, so I'm gonna wrap this one up. Um, but the assignment, quote unquote, your homework uh, remains the same. Uh, we hope you will spend some time over the next couple of weeks continuing the reflective practices that work best for you. Noticing your reactions, thoughts, feelings, physiological reactions when working with clients. So noticing clients where you do too much or too little, where you're on overprotect or neglect sides of the spectrum, or if you're not like firmly on it, um, where you feel pulled towards one side or the other. 
Um, think of how you, if you are able to stay somewhere in the middle, how you do that. What, what are you doing to uh, remain in that place? And when you do get pulled to one side or the other, what are the specific things that come up for you? So notice when you have clues of an unconscious reaction, like countertransference or bias, how do those interrelate to when you dip into neglect or overprotect? And again, we, we hope you would take the same perspective that we do around this of non-judgment on yourself. If you are considering instances where you have gone to one side or the other, uh, where countertransference or bias has guided uh, your boundaries with a client, it happens to all of us, every single one of us. Chelsea and I can give many, many examples <laughs> um, ourselves. So it's a, a space of non-judgment, um, just a space of exploration. All right, also consider where boundaries may help you prevent burnout in your own work. Um, where are they needed? Uh, where might you be doing pulling an EN and avoiding instead of setting boundaries and experiencing more stress and more burnout? Um, and listing some instances where you can practice acceptance to manage the stress of your client's risk. So radical acceptance is that skill I talked about. Um, you can check it out from DBT Lit, or you can check out the training that we have. And we were going to touch on the FSP Foundations Learning Pathway. That is starting now-ish. And here on the screen, we also have our uh, Case Managers Learning Exchange. Um, noted as well as the Wellbeing Wednesday self-care break that both of these happen bi-weekly. These are options for a space to reflect, to bring case challenges, bring boundaries challenges, um, and talk about it with your peers and with our team as facilitators. Uh, we just sort of create the space. Um, okay, let's wrap up. We're good. Thanks everyone. Thanks for your participation. Really enjoyed your perspectives and contributions to today your wonderful group make this a really enjoyable experience as a facilitator so thank you so much yes just echoing elizabeth thank you all for being so engaged and um participating in today's training and our session our previous session it's really energizing and this is a topic that i think is near and dear to both of our hearts so really uh it's nice to be able to discuss it with you. So thank you. Thanks for showing up.